coming from it's just turned afternoon here on the east coast uh brandon garrett the national minority quality forum uh, with today's webinar on diabetes and vaccines that will be led by our very own Kristen hobbs uh before i turn it over to Kristen, i just want to make a quick announcement that uh every year at least since 2016 the national minority quality forum has hosted our selected 40 individuals to be in our 40 under 40 Uh, top leaders my, leaders of minority health and those applications are out now at least you can go on our website and I'll put a link into the uh, chat box for it so if you are you know someone that's interested please share we love to get a good quality group of folks on there um, and and at our national annual summit I believe it's our 21st coming up April 17th and 18th in 2023 in Washington DC and without further ado I will take to one of our very own 40 under 40 uh uh, Kristen, so Ms. Hobbs. Hi, Brandon. Um, thank you guys so much for joining us for our Champions for Total Health webinar on diabetes and vaccines. I am Kristen Hobbs. I'm the Director of Quality Improvement and Equity, as well as the co-chair of our Cancer Stage Shifting Initiative here at NMQF, and excited to be leading our webinar today. So just a little bit about our Champions for Total Health series. We really wanted to make sure we could expand our focus in 2022 to reach um, historically excluded communities where they are in the context of dealing with and um, managing their chronic illnesses at the intersections of vaccinations. And so that's what has brought us here today for diabetes and vaccines. It is National Diabetes Awareness Month. Um, and we will be talking a lot about that intersection um, in minoritized communities. We also have a drive flu program that we implement a rapid cycle plan, do study act, um, quality improvement framework um, that does seek to improve flu vaccinations in these historically excluded communities. So without further ado, let's get started. We have a lot to talk about today with our esteemed panelists. The first being Dr. Jasmine Gonzalvo. She is the Chris and Teresa Demos Director of the Center for Health Equity and Innovation and Clinical Professor at Purdue University in Eskenazi Health. Welcome, Jasmine. Thank you, Kristen. And good afternoon or uh, morning to everybody, depending on where you're at. I got a, um, well, of course now, I gotta pull up my slides and share my screen. Okay. Oh, are you all seeing it in presentation mode? Hopefully, yes. Yes, we are. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Kristen. Okay. Well, one of the things we wanted to start off today when we were planning for this webinar was just um, talking about the relationship between diabetes and COVID-19 or influenza. So um, I, I won't go too deep in the weeds with this, but just give a broad overview of what's going on between diabetes and COVID-19, really. What we, well, early on, what we're seeing here um, and what's on the slide is essentially describing the relationship and, and really the prevalence here. And so what we know is that COVID-19, the impact that we saw on hyperglycemia, we saw higher incidence of DKA and even new onset diabetes. So we know that the hyperglycemia and COVID outcomes and that association um, were people with diabetes were had worse outcomes um, in, 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 at, at hospital on admission while hospitalized. We knew the mortality um, associated with DKA and people with diabetes and COVID is also worse. And then what came out after the, the pandemic had gone on for a while was seeing higher cases of new onset diabetes. So that was um, something that was uh, sort of a nuance um, coming out with the impact of COVID. And the impact or the relationship is bi-directional. So not only is it potentially um, that COVID can cause um, new onset or, or exacerbate new onset hyperglycemia and cause new onset diabetes, but the, the, dire the direction, it being bi-directional as well. So when we see, um, obviously, 
poor outcomes in diabetes and that being a risk factor for developing severe COVID-19 um, outcomes as well. So hyperglycemia, associated comorbidities, related complications, and in the context of um, especially social determinants of health, we see worsened outcomes. And then again, the hyperinflammation associated with severe COVID-19, um, hyperglycemia in that setting, as well as some potential direct effects of COVID-19 on um, the pancreatic beta cells is, is also a relationship that we've, we've established as well. So Knowing that we were seeing worsened mortality, worsened outcomes with this sort of bi-directional relationship with hospitalizations and whatnot, this is really just um, showing that all of these are contributing to um, poor outcomes. And um, so we know that there are existing disparities because of a lot of socioeconomic factors, but then when you layer on diabetes and the complications, we're really seeing poor outcomes associated with COVID. And um, the importance of this uh, talk today, especially, is highlighting the importance of vaccinations and improving access to vaccinations to really help um, with this problem and this with this issue that I'm describing here. That um, if we can get the word out and improve access for people and populations with diabetes, um, and and sort of be proactive about pre preventing complications um, that may arise from severe COVID or or influenza illness um, through vaccinations and improving those vaccination rates, then we're really doing a something impactful to, to help prevent the poor outcomes. Um, what we see here, and, and this is getting sort of into the nitty gritty of how um, COVID actually infiltrates um, beta cells and can cause direct injury to um, the cells, which can lead to diabetes or hyperglycemia or new onset diabetes. And that's displayed on, on this slide here, looking specifically at the angiotensin converting enzyme two receptors um, on cells and really leading to that um, direct in injury to cells that can contribute and exacerbate hyperglycemia and lead to new onset diabetes. This is just the, the actual mechanism of action that we see um, that, that explains that relationship here. So we are seeing um, the, the initial trend, which then led to really making the claim here that individuals under 18 years of age with COVID-19 are more likely to receive a new diabetes diagnosis over 30 days after infection than were those without COVID-19 and those with pre-pandemic acute respiratory infections. Um, so that relationship is, is fairly well established at this point. And um, so knowing that COVID-19 really does have an association with new onset diabetes, um, and again, sort of that bi-directional relationship being problematic as well. When it comes to influenza and diabetes, there is some literature to describe some new onset diabetes and some um, injury to um, the, the beta cells or the pancreas actually, um, and, and the association with influenza, but not, not as, as well established as what we know actually about COVID. Um, and so again, there is, is some literature to suggest that that relationship exists, um, and, but again, not quite as strong as, as the relationship with COVID. We do know that outcomes in people with diabetes for influenza and severe influenza, um, so three times more likely to die with influenza or pneumonia and six times more likely to be hospitalized. So we know that that, that relationship exists, that people with diabetes do um, suffer from worsened outcomes with, with influenza. Um, so I kind of gave a little bit of a hat tip to this earlier, but um, really emphasizing and improving access in um, populations that are under-resourced is, is a critical area of need and of work. Um, when you layer on potential barriers um, related to the social determinants of health, um, we really can see uh, disparate outcomes um, and, and, and increased mortality, particularly when we have um, those other barriers to um, combat. 
my work at the Center for Health Equity and Innovation, I just want to show one example of a model here, here very quickly before we move on to the rest of the presentation. Um, through Purdue and, and my center, we partnered with Walgreens and we, we really look at things through a pharmacy lens, actually. So here we have here a bunch of um, pharmacy and public health students that help out at these health access events. But what we've been able to accomplish is partnering with um, food banks and homeless shelters to improve um, access for communities who hadn't been accessing um, vaccines, both flu and COVID vaccines for whatever reason, we were finding that um, a lot of the vaccines that we were administering were actually first time vaccinations. And a lot of our population here, um, again, have a lot of barriers related to the social determinants of health that may have prevented accessing the vaccines independently. So being on site at food banks and homeless shelters, um, we have had some success and, and some uh, momentum to continue offering those events. Um, we, through uh, the course of June 2021 20, through October 2022, um, 20, over 21,000 families have been served at the food pantry events um, in terms of just interactions with those clientele. And we've been able to administer um, close to 2,000 vaccinations. Actually, today, today we, we would have surpassed uh, 2,000 vaccinations um, at one of our events, and we're looking at vaccine hesitancy and uh, having those conversation, um, and then uh, also looking at a, a pretty diverse uh, population or um, serving people of color um, through these vaccination events as well. So um, this is just one model that I wanted to highlight here in terms of um, improving access to um, populations who were not um, independently accessing the vaccination or who had barriers to, to accessing the vaccination um, on their own. So happy to answer more questions about um, this model towards the end. But um, with that, I will stop sharing and kick it back to Kristen to introduce our next speaker. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Gonzalo. Um, the work you're doing at Checky is absolutely fantastic. So just a quick reminder, you can engage in all kinds of respectful and networking communications in the chat, um, but please put your questions in the Q&A box so that we can see them. We have some pre-submitted questions and then we'll get to your um, live submitted questions during the Q&A portion. So I would like to introduce Dr. Michelle Fiskis, who is the Chief Medical Officer at the Association of Immunization Managers. All right, thanks, Kristen. Um, seeing my slides okay? Yes, they are perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I just wanted to give you some updates on what flu is actually looking like right now and some of our concerns about where we are um, in the season with flu vaccination rates across the, the U.S. Um, so this is a really ugly map of, of what flu is looking like right now. And I, I actually don't recall a year where we had to um, get a new color, that purple color, because flu activity was so high. So you can see that in the southeastern United States, especially, um, they're just getting hammered by influenza. Um, but really, the the whole lower two thirds of the country um, is is uh, seeing really high rates of influenza, um, and that's concerning because this season is is not only um, severe, but it's also really early. And a lot of folks wait until they get into November to get flu vaccines. And, and really, you know, here we are mid-November, well on our way um, into this year's epidemic. Um, this is a, a chart of the other seasons, um, all of these other seasons here. Um, by year, the, the teal one is 2718, which is always thought to have been the worst season um, over the last 10 years or so for influenza-like illnesses. So um, this, is, this is respiratory illnesses, visits, outpatient visits for respiratory illnesses. So not just influenza, but also RSV and enterovirus and, and common colds and others that required visits. But you can see where this red arrow is that this is this season 
And um, so again, early compared to what we've seen in previous years and that trajectory of that red line um, is one that's really concerning for um, a, a terrible season that may outpace what we saw in 27, 2018. Um, just by comparison, you can see the red line um, towards the bottom is um, 2021 and uh, and the orange one is, uh, well, 2020, 2021 is the red one. 2021, 2022 is the orange one where we saw you know, relatively light flu seasons. Um, this is not going to be one of those seasons. Um, and then this is looking at the hospitalizations uh, specifically due to influenza. So these are people who've been tested and shown to be hospitalized because of influenza. And again, um, this red curve out to the left is where we are now, a very early season uh, trajectory that we really don't like looking at these hospitalizations so far for flu. And then to the right, this is a comparison of um, the characteristics of these hospitalizations. So about 40% of these have been people with metabolic disease, which can include diabetes, compared to about 6% that are people who have no underlying health conditions. So um, just as Dr. Gonzalvo mentioned, with uh, people with diabetes having about six times the risk of hospitalization of people who don't have diabetes, we're seeing this play out in real time with this year's hospitalizations because we're just a little over six times as likely um, for one of the people hospitalized in this season to have diabetes or, or another metabolic disease um, compared to um, previously healthy individuals. Um, this is a, a slide from CDC just looking at higher risk for hospitalization based on um, ethnic uh, and racial groups as well. And you can see that um, you know, Blacks across the board have had higher risk of hospitalizations actually until this last season where, where that risk came down some. Um, which is wonderful. And then um, uh, American Indian, uh, Alaskan Natives um, also having very high rates and Hispanics um, having higher rates than whites generally. So um, you know, we, we do wanna make sure that we've got people protected as best we can. Uh, when we look at deaths, um, the graph on the left, the this is the mortality rate. It's kind of a busy graph, but this red line that's bouncing up and down, these are deaths from any respiratory illness. So this could be flu, it could be RSV, it could be enterovirus, it could be COVID. Um, and so we're over here now in uh, this end part of 2022. And these this blue graph are the COVID-related deaths. So you can see as we were going through, you know, almost all of the respiratory deaths were COVID-related over the last couple of years. But right now we've got this big gap between what we're seeing with COVID-related deaths and what we're seeing with other respiratory deaths. And so um, you know, a lot of these are going to end up being influenza or um, some other respiratory disease. And then um, over here to the to the right side, these are um, pediatric deaths that, that we've seen. And I'll just point out that in 2021, we had only one death in the entire nation during the 2020-2021 influenza season for children. Um, then that picked back up again last year to 44. Um, we're now at seven and, and season didn't begin until the beginning of October. So um, we've had seven pediatric deaths just in about five weeks of this season season so far, so that does not bode well for uh, for our kids. Um, almost always children who die from influenza are unvaccinated, so it's really important to get them vaccinated. Um, and, uh, and we've had uh, two deaths this week and two deaths last week, so um, of, of those seven, four of them have happened just in the last two weeks. Um, and then if we look at the number of flu vaccinations that have been given, so this is for adults so far, and this is comparing uh, doses that have been given in pharmacies and doses that have been given in physician medical offices. And um, you can see you know, generally a lot of people, that's these, these top um, green and blue lines get flu vaccines in pharmacies with where when it comes to adults. 
And um, the this year's pharmacy line is this top red uh, arrows pointing to this purple line. And so they're pretty much right on track in pharmacies with the with what happened last season as far as giving flu vaccines. But what we're seeing is that medical offices, uh, which is this lower red uh, chart and, and dot here, are down significantly from what we've seen in past seasons. Um, and so this trajectory is really worrisome, whether this is because we've got physicians' offices that don't have the capacity to vaccinate people, or we've got people who are um, not getting vaccines when they're in medical offices, or we have providers that just aren't um, recommending vaccines. And we, we know that when medical providers make a strong recommendation for flu vaccines, that people are much more likely to get them. So, um, so thankfully the, the pharmacies are, are staying on track here, but we may have a lot of missed opportunities in medical offices as, as vaccines aren't being given there as, as much. Um, this is the what it looks like for pregnant people, um, and this is year over year. So this year is the orange bar, this 2022-2023 season. Um, and you can see across the board when we look at race and ethnicity, um, we've got rates of vaccination amongst pregnant people that are down this year compared to years past. Um, we've, they're actually the lowest they've been for this time in the year than, um, than we have seen in any of the last three years. So, um, you know, just again, making sure that we're messaging to pregnant people, the importance of getting vaccinated because they are at higher risk for, um, hospitalization and death from influenza as well as COVID, um, Sometimes uh, pregnant people have gestational diabetes that um, can put them at even greater risk. And we wanna make sure that they're getting flu vaccines to help protect their infant when they're born because they're not able to get their infant immunized until they're six months old. Um, and so we wanna try to protect those babies too. So when moms get vaccinated, they pass those antibodies to the baby and, and that helps to protect that baby. Um, and speaking of babies, this is where we are with kids. So um, last week, um, this red line was falling off. This is the season here, 2022, 2023. Um, and we did see a nice uptick this week in um, getting vaccination rates that are more on par with, with last season, at least. This may be in part due to all of the media around the, the RSV hospitalizations that we're seeing in children. Um, you know, we don't have vaccines for children for um, RSV, but we do have vaccines for influenza and COVID that can keep help keep them out of the hospital. So um, that may be in part what's driving this. And we actually see this uptick um, in minority groups, which is wonderful. So the, the, the green bar, um, I don't know why they didn't use the same colors as they did last one, but it's the green bar we're looking at now for 2022, 2023. And you can see that um, we're on par overall with last season for children getting vaccinated. But look at the Black and um, Hispanic rates. They are um, well above last season, sometimes above the last four seasons. So again, it might be parents that are concerned about um, all these respiratory diseases that we're seeing in kids. And um, it's actually the non-Hispanics and non-Hispanic whites that are trailing behind. Um, and that may be in part due to some of this ideologic um, um, adoption of, of you know, more um, anti-vaccine um, or you know lack of vaccine confidence that is is sometimes now tied to political ideology unfortunately um so the the so that's one bright spot the other bright spot is that um, you know we hear every year about the flu vaccine match and some people think well it's not worth getting flu vaccines because um you know they they're they never pick it right and they don't stop flu so um this is a, a pretty busy table on the right but basically what it shows is that the vaccine virus and the viruses that are circulating are very very similar so their antigens are uh, north of 90 percent similar. Um, the proteins that we're seeing on those viruses are very similar to what um, the viruses were that were picked for the vaccine. So this should be a good match season. Um, we'll get some mid- season uh, efficacy data in a few more weeks, but um, but at least early indicators suggest that this, this vaccine 
um, is going to do a good job. What we're seeing circulating right now, and these are last week's numbers, this, this has shifted just a little bit. Um, H3 and 2, which is one of the type A viruses, we're seeing in about 75% of what's going around. H1N1 is about 25%. And there's a little speck of influenza B um, that we usually don't see very much influenza B this time of year. It's usually a little bit later in the season. Um, but the last couple of years, we've not really seen <clears throat> any influenza B to speak of. Um, so there's a little bit out there right now, this Victoria lineage of, of um, influenza B. All of these strains are covered in the flu vaccine that we have, um, and it looks to be a good match. So encourage people to, to get that vaccine. So um, what can we do? So one thing you can do is follow the CDC's weekly flu reports. That's where all of those graphics that I showed you early in the presentation, I have snagged um, from the, the flu view and keep track of what's going on in your community, whether or not you're seeing higher rates, what your hospitalizations look like. Um, CDC has a lot of social media resources that you can use to encourage other people to get vaccinated, including this help them fight flu. Um, uh, so they can do what they do, um, uh, platform that they're using right now, targeting children and adolescents primarily. Um, stories always make a big impact, and Families Fighting Flu has a whole library of uh, video vignettes about um, children and adults who have either died from influenza or have faced um, very serious illness from influenza. And so sometimes sharing those or watching some of those and being able to retell those stories to people who might be um, lacking some confidence in, in influenza vaccine um, can help move them towards getting vaccinated. And then um, there are also resources like uh, getmyflushot.org, where um, this reaches out, as, especially uh, with messaging for minority populations and, and important flu facts, like this 82% um, is what you can reduce your risk of getting uh, hospitalized in an intensive care unit if you get a flu vaccine. So, um, so they've got some important messages and also some nice Q&A there that you can share. So um, that is it for me. I will send it back to Kristen and uh, thanks for everything that you all are doing. And please, if you haven't yet gotten your flu shot, uh, go do that today. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Fiscus. I really appreciate you kind of dialing into what might be the cause of the decrease in flu uh, vaccinations this year, especially. I think one of the things I've been thinking about as well in, in educating my TikTok followers is to find free flu shots because um, depending on the type of flu shot you have, and if you are uninsured or underinsured, you could spend anywhere from $25 to $110. But there is help. I know that stores like Tom Thumb and Walgreens and CVS and those big box pharmacies um, do offer them for free. In a lot of places, there are public health interventions like mobile vaccination clinics in um, Colorado, for instance, so please, please dive into what your public health departments have for you um, in that regard. And now I will pass it over to Dr. Josie McLeod, who is the head of health and wellness ministry at the Open Arms Community Church. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much um, for allowing me to speak today. Um, I am in a unique position in that um, I am the head of our health ministry. Um, however, I just happen to be a medical doctor as well. Um, so I can give um, a little bit of both perspectives. Um, so what I want to discuss is how the church can promote health and health equity, including um, support for the congregation and community members, um, and specifically with regards to diabetes and vaccination. So um, in general, uh, we, we may know that, or you may know that the Black community typically um, listens to their pastors. So um, the church has been a place where um, information can be disseminated and um, the congregants generally trust their pastors. So we want to make sure that the leaders of the church are um, on board, number one, with health promotions. Um, and my church definitely is. In fact, it's very important to um, our bishop that the community is um, educated very well. Um, and one of the ways that we um, provide education is by 
you know, encouraging um, health fairs. Um, we want to encourage churches in general to have some sort of a health ministry. Um, but then we encourage health fairs. We do other health promotion events. Um, and we also like to make sure that we support events that are already planned. For instance, if there's going to be um, something for the kids on the campus of the church, you want to make sure that you always include a health component. Um, we had a family and friends day recently and made sure that we had a little mini health fair with that. Um, because sometimes the health fairs, people can kind of get tired of coming out to those. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't really want to know what's going on. So when they hear health fair, they think, oh, they're going to want to check my blood pressure or my blood sugar. I don't really want to talk about that. Um, so we try to kind of sneak things in. Um, and one of the things that I've also done um, with our health ministry is to go to um, the other ministry meetings. So we have um, a ministry for our seniors that we call the pace setters. And um, I made sure that I um, kind of came and sat in on one of their meetings or their monthly activities to provide some health information that would be relevant to them. We talked about uh, medication safety at that time. Um, I always am talking about the importance of diet and exercise um, because of course we know that that is one of the mainstays of treatment for diabetes. Um, so we also went to um, the children's church and, and talked about health and um, diet and exercise on their level so that we make sure that they're understanding even at a, a young age, the importance of taking care of their bodies, preventing diabetes. Um, also, you know, if you're having another community event, like I said, you, you go ahead and add those events. We've done blood drives, we invite the blood bus. And one of the things that that does is it ensures that there's going to be a little bit more participation because I, I know from experience that if I um, try to arrange a blood drive and ask people to come out just for that, we're gonna get low turnout. So instead, if I know we're going to be having a, um, a yard sale or we're going to be having any kind of ministry awareness fair, um, that people are going to be there. And then I try to tackle the um, task of trying to encourage people to go ahead and, and give blood as well. Um, and that brings me to another point. Um, of course, we have the fear of vaccinations. We have um, those who just are not wanting to get them, especially the flu shot. We definitely saw some issues with the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, but even now, when I ask um, patients or family members, you know, have you had a COVID vaccine? I'll get a lot of them saying yes, because there was that fear for uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic. Um, meanwhile, I still get the typical answer when I ask, okay, have you had your influenza shot? And oh, no, I never get that. Every time I get the flu shot, I get the flu or I get sick. Um, so continuing to educate um, church members just in general about vaccines and not only focusing on the COVID-19 and the um, flu vaccines, just to give a general awareness and um, educate uh, education on the fact that um, we have many vaccines that are necessary, especially for those patients who are diabetic and just kind of making it um, a conversation that's become the norm. So we talk about how, you know, we alleviated lots of diseases by vaccinating. And um, we try to make sure that we um, make it relative to that uh, person. So something that they can relate to. So we kind of bring it home and, and give them more personal um, examples, um, make it uh, relatable to them. So we talk about family members who may have been ill or protecting elderly family members at home or younger um, children by vaccinating yourself. Um, again, when we do have our events, we, we try to provide basic screenings as often as possible so that the members of the church get used to it. So they know that they're gonna be able to get their blood pressure checked. 
Um, as often as we can, we go ahead and provide blood sugar screenings. That one is a little bit more difficult to do. Um, nobody wants their fingers poked. Um, but we also uh, reach out to uh, community partners such as pharmacies and the health department and have them come and provide educational information. Um, we recently had WIC come and provide nutrition information and that worked out very well. The other thing you wanna do is reach out to other health professionals that may be in your church to assist with educating your um, congregants. Um, often we have other physicians, we have nurses, nurse practitioners, we even have um, nursing and medical assistant students who would be more than happy to, you know, be able to get some practice in um, as far as providing health information and education, but also um, as far as doing procedures. So we have them come and do the blood pressures and the blood sugar screenings. Um, and we also educate whenever possible. So every month there's tons of um, health awareness um, items. Um, of course, we know November is diabetes awareness, but there's many other um, awareness month, um, uh, health promotions that are going on right now in November. So, you know, educate the, the congregation as often as possible by providing flyers, um, making announcements, um, maybe having some small activities during um, those months. Um, we've done health challenges, the biggest loser. We've done steps challenges. Um, so always, you know, be ready to choose one or two um, activities or events or, or health awareness topics to present during that month. Um, and it doesn't have to be something that's done every day, maybe once a week or twice a month, just to kind of keep in their minds that, you know, um, there's something going on and there's always something to learn about. We try to do our blood drives during sickle cell awareness month. Um, we try to do our um, blood sugars and things like that during diabetes awareness. We even talk about um, World AIDS Day and making sure that people understand the importance of getting HIV screenings. Um, so just in general, we wanna normalize um, health education as well as vaccine discussion. So we want to do that as often as possible. And we have seen um, personally that people can definitely change their minds. Um, we don't want to browbeat anyone. You know, we provide the education, we provide written materials, and we just keep at it. You know, we talk to um, congregants who are completely against it. But again, once you make it relatable to them and make it relevant to their own personal lives, um, then I think that you have a better chance of um, getting that education across and convincing them of, of why they need to do um, what we're requesting and recommending that they do. Um, I know when we did do our sickle cell awareness month and we talked about having blood drives, of course, Blood drives are one of the things that are very hard to, um, that's very hard to get people to participate in. But what we did was we um, tried to make everyone understand how the, um, the bulk of the community that needs to receive the blood um, is going to be the African-American community, especially due to sickle cell. I think that most people didn't quite understand how often um, those patients need to receive blood. Um, also, you know, relating it to cancer and, and honestly, even someone who may have um, diabetes or other diseases, um, you can have anemia of chronic disease. So just trying to um, bring it down to a level where they can understand it a little better and realize that we all do um, know someone in our families or we may personally need to receive blood. So then that'll help them to um, change their minds a little bit. And the same thing with diabetes and vaccinations. So um, I am open to any questions anyone may have regarding different ways to um, try to help promote health literacy and education in the church. 
And I thank you so much for allowing me this time. Thank you so much, Dr. McLeod. Um, I really appreciate you really getting at the heart of meeting people where they are, especially those living with diabetes and not, um, you know, being accusatory or browbeating people, especially in historically excluded communities like the Black community. So thank you so much. Um, and now for our last um, but not least panelist, Ms. Sarah Mart, who is the Director of Operations at Diabetes Sisters. She will give us her perspective from a patient advocacy perspective. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kristen, and um, to everyone for being here with us today. Um, staying healthy with diabetes is a big deal, an important topic for me, both personally and professionally. And I'm here with you today as a woman living with diabetes, a person with many loved ones who lived with diabetes, and someone whose professional work is also to help people with diabetes be healthy. These last two and a half years with COVID have made the professional especially personal for me too, as I have seen loved ones be infected, experience a wide range of symptoms, um, and some die from COVID as well. And similarly with flu, pneumonia, or shingles, um, various concerns that we have um, vaccinations for. We know that having diabetes increases our risk of heart disease, the most common diabetes complication. People with diabetes have worse outcomes after heart attacks, are at higher risk of other diabetes-related complications, such as blindness, kidney disease, depression, than people who are not living with diabetes. And then we bring in the information that we've learned and, and what we have as far as COVID and these other infections. So we're more likely to be hospitalized, more likely to have more severe or worse symptoms and have worse complications if we get COVID. And the older someone is and the more health conditions that someone has, for example, diabetes plus heart disease, um, and many others increases our risk of experiencing complications from COVID. So diabetes is an important risk factor for severe COVID experience. And so much of that has to do with hyperglycemia as Dr. Gonzalo was speaking earlier, high blood sugar, that thing that people with diabetes are constantly trying to influence and manage and change. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, complications from diabetes are prompted or escalated with COVID, flu or pneumonia, we're more likely to get sicker, stay in the hospital, um, and even to die. So the risks are more and they're more serious. Um, and we're thinking about it. We're thinking about it all the time. Um, it's not always that we're not aware, um, although we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, but the last two and a half years with COVID have also shifted personal concerns into the professional realm for me. I work for Diabetes Sisters, a national diabetes nonprofit, 501c3. At Diabetes Sisters, I work with more than 60 volunteers around the country to create programs and content that make lives of women with diabetes easier and better. And we wanna make sure that women with diabetes understand our risks and know how we can stay as healthy as possible. That's been amped up and increased even more um, and become even more important, of course, as we've experienced COVID and flu, pneumonia, et cetera. And diabetes is not only different for women, it's different among women. Women who are African-American, Hispanic, Latina, American Indian, Alaska Native, and Asian Pacific Islander are two to four times more likely to have diabetes than white women. So Diabetes Sisters is always working to ensure that we reach and include women of color too. We know people with all types of diabetes and pre-diabetes especially women and women of color, aren't always offered appropriate, accurate diabetes education and support that they need. And we also aren't offered appropriate, accurate info and support regarding other health concerns like these conditions that we're talking about today and their relation to diabetes. So the barriers that we see with 
to people with diabetes getting vaccinated are not new necessarily. They're ones we've seen um, with other conditions, other issues and diabetes over time. And they persist and they can even start to get worse as leaders and funders might feel like the problem is over. Um, the barriers include lack of understandable, empowering messages about vaccination, limited local supply of vaccines, having to go to a healthcare provider's office, a specific office or multiple offices to get vaccinated, to get various vaccines, um, limited times that they're available, limited locations, having to pay out of pocket for vaccines for each one specifically as well. Um, losing money, time, work time in order to take the time to get vaccinated, um, and confusion about vaccine eligibility and healthcare eligibility for the vaccinations. But luckily, the barriers point to exactly what we need and exactly what women with diabetes across the country tell diabetes sisters what they need in order to get vaccinated and try to reduce our risk. For women who see healthcare providers for diabetes or heart disease um, or anything else, those seven minutes that we get to see our healthcare providers need to include a question and interaction about whether or not we've gotten vaccinated, boosted for COVID, flu, pneumonia, shingles. I add them on because they're out there and, uh, and we know that we, we possibly can get vaccinated for those. If our answer to you, the healthcare provider is not yet, the vaccines need to be available and encouraged right then, and hopefully for free, as Kristen said earlier. For those of us who don't get to see healthcare providers regularly or ever, we need it to be super easy to get the vaccinations we need. We know that community health workers are key. Getting accurate, empowering info to beauty salons and barbershops is key. And even more, having access to the vaccines right there. Um, churches and health ministries and churches are key, again, as we just heard. Again, for both amplifying accurate information about vaccines and having affirming messages from trusted sources, um, people that we trust, and hearing those messages again and again as has been said also, it's important. Connecting vaccination and our own health and the health and well-being of our communities and loved ones is key. It needs to be easy to get vaccinated. And um, because the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines is organized on a state-by-state -state basis, it's important that this be local um, and for people to to know about what's going on and how they can find, um, how, how they can come in contact with vaccination info and the vaccines themselves um, locally. And at Diabetes Sisters, we know that peer support is incredibly important, that education and encouragement is an important piece of the puzzle as well. Um, one of our signature programs, the part of Diabetes Sisters or PODS meetup program, coordinates peer support groups in more than 30 locations around the U.S. and online. And volunteer peer support, peer support leaders who are women with diabetes or prediabetes are provided with topics and discussion modules for each month. Um, this year, the September module was being prepared, which includes emergency preparedness, sick day preparedness for women with diabetes, and recommended vaccines. And we talk about our increased risk for severe illness, hospitalization, and continued chronic problems from viruses such as COVID, flu, pneumonia, um, related comorbidities such as heart disease, the symptoms we need to watch for, the questions we need to bring to our healthcare providers if we have appointments coming up, and ways we can take action to lower our risks. So vaccination is, is high and top of the list for that. At Diabetes Sisters, we work hard to empower all women with any type of diabetes or prediabetes and to know both the facts about our conditions, that's plural, um, and ways to live our healthiest lives. 
And as I share all of that about our program, what we've done, and listen to our esteemed panelists talking about um, the risks and, and where we are as a country, um, what keeps coming to mind for me is um, how many people with diabetes have been vaccinated and or boosted for COVID, flu, pneumonia? Um, do we know? And how do we know? And let's keep, keep after it. So thank you. That was absolutely beautiful, Sarah. Thank you so much. Um, I want to really now move to our Q&A portion. So I'll ask um, Sarah and Dr. Gonzalvo to help us move through these questions. We have some pre-submitted questions and then I think a couple in the Q&A box that are live. Um, so the first pre-submitted question we have is what is the role of NMQF slash slash SHC on the people already affected by diabetes. Um, so if you didn't know, SHC stands for the Center for Sustainable Healthcare Quality and Equity. Um, that is our team and that's where this um, entire sort of Champions for Total Health um, webinar series came from. So we have a number of type two diabetes quality improvement programs going on around the country. We have one in Oakland, Chicago, we are, and we are expanding um, our previous work in New Orleans, Louisiana, and in Queens, New York. In each of those, we are working with FQHCs and safety net hospitals to really improve health outcomes for individuals already living with type 2 diabetes, and in some instances on the prevention arm, so those who may be, um, have just been recently diagnosed with prediabetes as well. I won't go into detail because we don't have much time and I know we have a bunch of questions to get through, um, but we also have some educational information. So I'm going to ask my colleague, Leslie or Chinny, to drop in our microsite in the chat for you guys to go to that talks specifically about diabetes and the intersection of vaccinations. Um, so our second pre-submitted question, what is your recommendation for having promotoras, so community health workers, discuss both vaccines and diabetes prevention within um, a particular community. So this commenter really has already been doing this work with promotoras with uh, COVID-19, and um, I'm assuming they want to expand that to flu. So any suggestions there from the panelists? I think it's a fantastic idea. It's great. Yes, please do. Yes, support. <laughs> Awesome. Um, any tactical suggestions? Like, do they need certain materials or education? Um, or do they need certain support from people like NMQF? I don't know. Um, with the work that I do with CHWs, I think that, you know, any any area that, you know, you'd really like to work with CHWs and focuses just need a little bit of education and the right resources and go and they work their magic. Um, so I think, you know, no need to recreate the wheel. I think there are a lot of resources out there just um, that are fairly um, kind of uh, appropriate for different audiences um, in languages and um, across a variety of different, you know, here's why you should get whatever vaccination. So I think it would be pretty easy for a CHW or a promotora to find those um, reputable uh, resources. Um, but I also think just, you know, asking, working with the employer to say, here's what I need, here's what I want to do, here's the need in the community. Um, I think, I think it's a fantastic idea and is not too heavy of a lift because a lot of the resources already exist. That's exactly what I was thinking, so thank you. Um, okay, so our next question, what is the difference between the monovalent and bivalent vaccines for COVID? I think I was supposed to take that too. Anyone else, please join in. I just think that we had sort of assigned this to me. Um, essentially, the monovalent um, contains the original strain, the mRNA strain of um, COVID that, you know, caused the whole pandemic in the first place. And then when we saw the Omicron um, variant come out, we knew that that strain was also um, very prevalent in addition to the original strain. So monovalent is just the original strain, bivalent um, has mRNA 
coverage from the original strain and the um, Omicron variant. So basically just trying to cover both variants um, with, with the, with the bivalent vaccine versus just the monovalent. Absolutely. And it kind of, um, if you think about the quadrivalent flu vaccine, um, that has different um, flu variants in it as well. This is kind of the same functionality, if you will. And hopefully we won't have to get to a quadrivalent, but I don't know. It seems like um, COVID-19 is like, I'm just going to keep producing more babies and they're going to be fit to withstand all of the shenanigans in society. So anyway. The next question, if I have received the monovalent, how long do I have to wait before I can get the bivalent? I'll go ahead and take this one, Jasmine, um, just really quickly. If you have received the monovalent recently, CDC guidance is three months. It's not gonna be exact. Um, it's not going to be, um, oh, excuse me, it's uh, six months after the monovalent, three months if you've had COVID-19, excuse me. Um, it's not gonna be exact to the day. It's really more of guidance so that your immune system can have the most robust response to the bivalent vaccine. Okie dokie, as a person with diabetes, should I also get a pneumonia vaccine? Yes. <laughs> that would be. <laughs> and and again, it's just it's just really because um, again being at risk for sort of more serious complications from from these types of illnesses um, and getting vaccinated to get prevented or or lessen the severity, I think is is warranted. All righty, and our next question: How safe is it to receive all these vaccines simultaneously? Flu, COVID, pneumonia. Can I get them in the all in the same arm? So co-administration. Yes, you can get them all at the same time, all in the same arm. You can, you can kind of share your arm, uh, arm space, arm real estate though, if you want to. Um, there are some minor um, administration things like, uh, I believe it's like one inch away from each other if it's intramuscular, for example, but um, yes, you can get a lot at the same time in, in the same arm if you wanted to just sort of spread out um, on, on the same arm if you were going to. Awesome. Um, so I'm going to go to the live questions. Given the risk of diabetes onset to folks infected with COVID, is it reasonable to recommend folks discuss pre-diabetes lifestyle prevention and monitoring strategies with their providers? and proactively recommend these approaches to folks previously identified with prediabetes, gestational diabetes, or high risks, especially if the con in the context of SDOH. And are there data yet to see if there's greater likelihood of diabetes onset in anyone with those risks? That was kind of a quadruple barreled question. So first, is it reasonable to discuss prediabetes lifestyle prevention and monitoring strategies? And this is just an opinion, um, an educated opinion, but um, I, yes, um, pre-diabetes pre lifestyle interventions are, are actually pretty generalizable to the general public of um, really healthy food selections, everything in moderation type deal. So um, probably would, I, I'd be hard pressed to find a situation where pre-diabetes lifestyle counseling wouldn't be appropriate um, for most people. Um, I think what, what the question is really alluding to is really, you know, people with pre-diabetes or at risk for diabetes should know that um, getting COVID could potentially push you um, in the wrong direction um, towards more towards diabetes or developing diabetes. And um, so I think that the general awareness, I think of the relationship is important, um, so that people aren't surprised. I don't know that, you know, necessarily people would, would maybe do much different, but I think, uh, improving the awareness of the relationship, the bi-directional relationship is, is important. Perfect. And then, um, the last live question that we have, when children die from influenza, do they usually have some other health issues that make them more susceptible to serious illness? That may be a question for Dr. Fiscus. 
um, she had to step off. I will send that to her and we will get an answer. Um, and then we have two more minutes. So before we um, hop off, I did wanna ask one of our last pre-submitted questions, which is what can we do as public health practitioners, as clinicians, and what are our action items moving forward and how do we leave a bigger footprint? I guess in the way of um, that submitter was asking in the way of getting more people living with diabetes vaccinated. Well, I think to be to begin, but we've been talking about it this this whole time. Um, start where you are and um, ask the question in terms of uh, vaccination efforts and what's going on right now, and ask the question for any individual on on the individual level that you know lives with diabetes if they've been vaccinated, if they've been vaccinated for these various, uh, gotten them all, uh, and support the efforts that are that are in the community right now. That is a great answer. Thank you, Sarah. Um, we did have one more question in the Q&A, or two more questions in the Q&A. Um, and uh, it really is about should there be a formal regular recommendation should providers have a plan to respond to COVID diagnoses by emphasizing prevention interventions for anyone at risk? Yes, I will say yes. I'll turn it over to Dr. Gonzalo and Sarah. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that there's any harm in that. And if there's capacity to do so, I think there's, there's, there's definitely uh, room for benefit um, in that space. And with the work that we do with drive flu and drive COVID-19, um, we do help provide that capacity in that space for clinicians and their health systems to um, really have regular recommendations around these types of intersections. So I believe that is it. We are at time. I really want to be respectful of everyone's time. And I would like to thank all of you for joining us, especially our panel panelists. Um, Dr. Gonzalo, Dr. Fiscus, Sarah, um, Dr. McLeod, thank you so much. And um, look out for that YouTube recording to be posted on our page. Have a good holiday, everyone. Great. Thank you.